Hey folks, this is Josh Schlossberg, your host of the Green Root Podcast. For this episode, we have Michael E. Zimmerman, PhD. Before retiring in 2015, Michael Zimmerman taught philosophy for 41 years, first at Tulane University and later at the University of Colorado at Boulder. His research and teaching specialties include environmental philosophy, Heidegger, Nietzsche, and Buddhism. He is also the author of Integral Ecology, Uniting Multiple Perspectives on the Natural World. Welcome to the Green Root Podcast. Thank you, Josh. Very good to be with you. Yeah, I'm super psyched to have you here because I read the book Integral Ecology, which is checking in at about 600 something pages. It was pretty mind blowing. You've got a lot to say on a lot of topics and I wanna just get into it. So let's start with this concept. So integral ecology, people know what ecology is, the natural world and the living systems. What is this concept of integral or the concept of integration? What's that all about? Well, you know, it's, it's really vital, especially in today's uh, polarized world to, uh, understand what integration is about psychologically. Uh, you know, a number of your uh, podcast listeners may well have uh, been to sci- done psychotherapy. You know, I, I've, I've done some of that. And one of the things that uh, you're taught or you learn in that process is our tendency to project onto other people negative aspects of ourselves that we don't want to own up to. You know, I'm thinking about, you name it, the, stu- the stuff you put in your own psychological closet and don't like to talk about or even think about. Insofar as these issues that you've got, and typically issues you're showing up to the psychotherapist to talk about, to the extent that you don't have access to those, that you, you can't integrate those into your personality, those tend to escape and get projected onto under other people. And then you dislike them or you have some problem with them, a problem that often doesn't have much at all to do with that person, but has a lot to do with your inability or unwillingness to own up to your own dark side. You know, I think about those Star Wars films. Remember the first three Star Wars films? They're all about Luke Skywalker learning to integrate his dark side, which is his father. You know, all the stuff that he didn't like about himself He's projecting onto others. And part of the task of a, becoming a Jedi warrior, I guess, is to learn to integrate the, the negative and the positive aspects of yourself. They have to be in some kind of healthy dynamic tension. So you have to learn to look into that. Now, what this has to do with integral ecology is something like this. Uh, there's a tendency as you yourself develop as an individual, to put down, to to reject, uh, to dislike the stage of life you used to be in. Like when you become a teenager, you scoff at and put down what it was like to be a kid. Now, this isn't a lot of fun for your younger brothers and sisters, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to learn how to accept and affirm that previous stage of your life and to make it okay that you were like that. Again, this is part of psychotherapy in a way. So, so too, I think of greens, you know, like, you know, I was really green. Uh, I, I didn't like all this technological industrial uh, activity that was being so destructive to the planet. I, I still have, you know, grave reservations about it. But there was a tendency on my part to make anyone who associated with that or who was part of that bad and wrong. 
with no redeeming features. Now, you know, my father was a, a, a leading uh, figure in plastics uh, for many years. Uh, and so my tendency was, I think because of my issues with my dad, I, it, I tended to make the things he did in life bad and wrong. So plastics, PVC, all that stuff, well, that's bad and wrong because my dad's associated with it. So gradually I had to integrate my father and I had to integrate what he was up to. And that meant integrating uh, technology and industry. I mean, they're, they're the reasons we can have a podcast. We, we wouldn't be having a podcast in 1700 mm -hmm. or even you know 1900. Right. An enormous technological innovation, which has come at a big environmental cost, has also created enormous opportunity for people. So how do we reconcile, the, how do we integrate what moderns who are like my father, who are all about making opportunity available to people through greater wealth, greater education and through electricity and all that, how to integrate those noble goals. And they are noble. Yes, they're noble. With the fact that they have a lot of bad consequences, both socially and environmentally. How, how to accept what's noble and good about modernity and in industry and all that, while tempering those noble goals with the realization that there are other values, the value of animals, the values of ecosystems and so on, that were neglected, that were left out uh, in modernity. So that's part of what integral ecology is about, how to allow people to talk to each other uh, with respect, with recognizing what's good about what they were trying to do instead of just regarding the whole thing as bad and wrong. That's an example of projection. So integral ecology involves integrating your own psychological state so that you're able to converse with people with whom you disagree to understand where they're coming from, because only in that way can you find new allies. I think that's a great introduction to this whole concept. And yeah, I think the idea of shadow work, so kind of looking at the aspects of yourself, that's a really important thing, just being human. But I also noticed that kind of stuff doesn't exist as much in the environmental movement. And I've long time been a part of the environmental movement. I was what you would call, and some would still probably call in many ways, a radical, right? And a radical environmentalist, so rejecting everything that is basically after hunter-gatherer civilization, more or less. And right. while at the same time, driving in a car, counting on the smooth roads to take me out into the forest, wearing my polypropylene clothing <laughs> to keep me dry and stuff like that. And it doesn't mean that therefore, oh yes, all this technology, we should just create more technology to the end of time. But it's also not being hypocritical and realizing, well, there are some benefits and we might be able to utilize some aspects of this, not all aspects of it, but some aspects of it to reach our goals. But the idea that we have different values. So can you talk a bit about this concept of values and maybe how it ties into psychological development? Yeah, you know, this is re it, it's really interesting and complex, you know, working with this. I'm, I'm going to give you another example of this projection stuff, because I think this is so basic to the issues we face, because every one of us tend has a tendency to project, to dump our shadow stuff onto other people. And it just really messes stuff up. 
Uh, here, let me give you an example. You know, I, when I you know, used to teach undergraduates who are much more fun than graduate students, because graduate students are always worried about their professional future, you know, because I was their teacher, but undergraduates are much freer and more interesting. Uh, but we used to talk, talk a lot, especially in Buddhism class, about the tendency about what romance is about. Mm. You know, why do people, what is this falling in love? Okay. What, ha what happens when you fall in love? You tend to project an aspect of yourself which you value, but don't know, you don't know how to work with. You project it onto the other person, and then you fall in love with that. So the woman, the man, and, you know, depending on your sexual orientation, whatever, right, whoever you happen to be in love with or falling in love with, a lot of it has to do with projection onto the other person of values and, and characteristics that you like, but don't find in yourself somehow. So you're really falling in love with missing aspects of yourself. Now, this is perhaps inevitable, and one reason we like other people, because they fulfill us in some way. But when, you're, when it gets all tangled up with romance and sex and desire, man, you are really in for a, a, a problematic trip, as everyone listening to this knows. Everyone knows about the issues of romance. Now, what I discovered at a certain point doing a lot of this shadow work, I started seeing this projection. You know, I'd see an attractive young woman coming toward me, and I would start to go through this fantasy thing. You know, I'm projecting all this stuff, you know, well, we're gonna, we'll go out, well, who knows, we'll fall in love, we'll get married or something. And then the, the young woman would go by me and then, then I'd just be continuing. So I learned not even to do that. Mm -hmm. Look, encounter these young women, other people, just as who they are without all this added nonsense that I'm projecting out there. Now, look, the more you look at your life, uh, the more you'll see the projections and the greater the challenge and opportunity is to pull those back, to become a little more sane. And this is a way of respecting other people, letting them be who they are without being then being forced to come at you through the screen of all your stuff. It's not easy to do. Okay. But I think that's what's going on today with this fight between postmodern greens on the one hand and uh, uh, modernists on the other, people who favor human development versus those who favor nature protection. Uh, as you were suggesting earlier, there's a tendency on the part of people who are green, and I, I still have important elements of me that are green, to regard the uh, people who aren't green as just bad and wrong and who, who are, fail to have, they, they're undeveloped. They have failed to take the next step. But the fact is, if you look back in the history of modernity in these 1700s, 1800s, what those new rational types did was to regard those who were pre-modern, people who believed in God, people who had you know, pre-modern views about reality and so on, they rejected that. They dissociated themselves from it and set themselves up, moderns regarded themselves as a cutting edge of consciousness. And pre-moderns, people might as well live, be living in caves, et cetera. So now when postmoderns and greens come along, they do the same thing to moderns that moderns did to pre-moderns, dissociating themselves, projecting all the bad and wrong stuff onto them. And they then uh, greens wonder why moderns aren't so willing to make a deal with them. What's all the resistance? Well, they aren't getting any respect. 
All the things that they value are put down and rejected without any consideration by those of us who have been through this green phase. So that, that's the, for, so integral ecology is in part, there's much more to it, but this is the crux of it. How to talk to other people so that you can really get what's good about their values. Seeing what, why those people could possibly value that. And then once you see that and get that, then you'll say, yeah, you know, there really is something to that. So how can I, how can we work together? so that you, the modernist who wants human development and uh, human well-being and flourishing and so on for humanity, uh, how, so that we can talk to, to these people in a way that shows that we care about that too. We're not anti-human. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we want you to listen to our concerns, environmental concerns, about the consequences of kind of a headlong, heedless, thoughtless development in which there's such destruction. How, uh, of nature, because nature has its own value. It's not just stuff. And this is the contribution of the Greens, that non-human beings have value in themselves. Mm -hmm. They're not just raw material for us to use. So this is a basic conversation that has to take place uh, right now, I think, to move us be beyond a current stuck spot. And that could be the major contribution of integral ecology. Sure. Yeah, I think that's all super important. I personally went through stages where when I was doing my forest advocacy years ago, I thought of all loggers to a certain degree, or at least what they were doing for the most part of their timber industry. They're all basically bad people. They were evil because they were doing clear cutting of forests. That right. is factually damaging to the ecosystem. So this is not to suggest that we just forgive all of that and pretend those things aren't happening. It's understanding, okay, well, maybe we're exaggerating some of the impacts in some ways, but it's really about, okay, where are they coming from? So these loggers, I realize, okay, so they live in this community their whole lives. This is the employment. They're going to have to believe that what they're doing is a, is a positive thing. At the same time, people do utilize forest products. Maybe we don't need to use utilize them in the way we do. Maybe we waste them. Maybe we don't need to take it from this area. But the idea of, okay, well, what would a better logging industry look like? Instead of that, it's just kind of like, well, let's just shut it down. There, there is a need for some pushback, of course, but that doesn't actually create alternatives. But anyway, it was my... I didn't really change my views about logging per se, but I did change my views about loggers. And I, so what I noticed though, is when I start talking like that, I start triggering environmentalists. So I used to only trigger industry folks and I still do because I talk about environmental issues, but now I actually trigger folks who are, who are you know side by side with me working on these issues. Cause I'm like, Hey, uh, th these loggers aren't all evil. And then they're like, yes, they are. So I'm, I'm kind of coping with that. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast are kind of <laughs> like this guy, Michael is saying technology is, is good. What, what's going on with that? So yeah, we do have to get through all that. Yeah. Well, that, that, I mean, so you, you've been through a lot of the same things I've been through mm -hmm. and that is, you know, you got it. Uh, I'm in no position to, uh, make assessments about people's moral character. Mm -hmm. When I got plenty of issues I, of my own, all right? 
that you know I'm certainly not morally perfect. <laughs> and what you, as you were pointing out earlier, the every all of us use all this high tech stuff. Right. Uh, it's not as if everyone's giving up their cell phones and uh, no longer using a Zoom and uh, not and walking every. I mean, come on, we we can't do it. We're, we're thrown into a circumstance uh, not of our making. Uh, and, and part of the challenge is how to how to live within this uh, techno modern world uh, in in a way that takes advantage of what's good about it, but at the same time resists what seems to be over the top about it. Right. Now, if you if you think about uh, part of the issue has to do with just being human. You know, human beings are desire machines. Now, think about that. Mm-hmm. You know, what 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 are animals like? You know, mammals. Uh, go into estrus. Th- that's when they have sexual desire. It may, it may be a month every 12 months. Mm. You know, we have elk up here, and uh, we, I live near Rocky Mountain National Park. And mm-hmm. we, my wife and I, went up there several years ago to see the to see the rut, basically, mm-hmm. to see all these big bulls, you know, corralling the females, and and they give all these big trumpeting sounds to warn off the other males and. So that they, you know, so the, the whole, you know, so now human, here's the thing, the difference between a human being and a typical mammal is that we're always in heat. Mm-hmm. You know, where there's no estrus period, people are always ready to jump in bed. It's how we reproduce. We're, we're an unusual species in that way. Now, but this extends to so much. You know, what is enough? You know, how, how many CDs are enough? How many cars? How many houses? How many rooms in your house? How many possessions? I mean, our, our, our desires are practically infinite. Yep. Uh, so part of the issue that we're facing here in, in, in the 2020 in environmental terms is that everybody around the planet's kind of like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the so-called developing countries, you know, those people in Africa, for example, I mean, they all want to have their Honda to drive around. They want their cell phones. They want air conditioning. They're just like us in that respect. Now, we don't want them to be like us. You know, we want them to be live simply, you know, live lightly on the land and so on, but it's just not happening, all right? So the question is how to satisfy some dimension of consumer desire, uh, you know, while, while attempting to limit the uh, environmental cost of that, you know, the consequences of that. Right. That's the tricky part. Now, that's where uh, the movements like eco-modernism, uh, like... Uh, Schellenberger uh, and others uh, are attempting to do how to move to the future in a way that addresses environmental problems, while at the same time finding ways to provide authentic, necessary uh, technological industrial uh, platform support for people who, who are trying to become educated, who want to take advantage of modern medicine, modern science, modern uh, communication systems like we're taking advantage of here. It's a tricky road. Mm. Uh, many places where people on both sides have made mistakes. Um, but the, I, I think what we, people who, who are green, who have attained that level of consciousness, because I think it's a kind of an advance over previous consciousness because it's more inclusive. It integrates the value of non-human beings. It integrates nature as something important in itself, which previously hadn't been done very effectively. You know, moderns are all about just doing whatever to nature. Uh, let me and before let me just add this comment, and I'll, I'll let you uh, 
get back into it. But you know, back in the 70s when I was a graduate student, I mean, it's hard to believe this now, but it's true. I mean, back in the 70s, there were a few of these pioneers trying to make the case that animals can feel stuff. Right. Now, now get this. Right. I mean, this is 1970s. The prevailing view among philosophers, as well as the you know, medical profession and, and people who studied animal behavior, was that animals really didn't feel. That, you know, that they didn't have emotions, that, you know, that so that the NIH could do all these horrible experiments on animals because, you know, they A, they didn't have any value in themselves, and B, they really didn't feel anything. Yeah. Now, now, you and I and people listening are, could well be understand. I can understand why we all be horrified by this. Anyone who has a, who has had a pet or has worked with animals, uh, you know, in, in the field or or in farms, you, know, you really you get that. You know, these people, these critters feel stuff. They have emotions and so on. But the standard scientific and technological view was no. They are really just basically animal machines. That's why we could get these horrible agricultural practices, you know, factory farms and stuff. So only 40, 50 years ago, this was a prevailing view. Now that we've really changed it, this is totally unacceptable now. You, you can't get away with talking like this. Right. That's a rapid change culturally and an important one. And this, this shows how uh, there, there are uh, real world consequences for change of understanding of the non-human world. Right. Well, so you mentioned an evolution of consciousness. Now, I try to stay away from those terms, not because I don't agree with them, but because I know they turn a lot of people off as woo-woo, even though I think it's true. So this idea of going to the place where you actually see animals and then even the natural world is something that actually counts and is not just like a background for you, that is a basically stages of evolution, would you agree, in a sense, psychological I, I evolution? I do. You know, anyone who doesn't get this is, has had no, hasn't really checked out their own history. Yep. Think, of, think about the stuff you've fervently believed in when you were 12, okay? For one, you know, for one thing, let's say 11, for one thing, you never, you knew you never were, had any, were never going to have any interest in girls <laughs> or boys or whatever, right? Yeah, right. Because you, you, you did the testosterone, estrogen stuff hadn't shown up yet. Uh, so that whole world of sexual romantic stuff was just off the horizon. And the, the other sex, the other gender were regarded as some kind of mysterious beings that you had some relationship with, but really who you're interested in were playing with girls or boys, you know, depending on your orientation. Then the, the whole thing starts where you suddenly become interested in. Now, what happened there? There's a change of consciousness that occurs partly, it's partly as a result of hormones. But nevertheless, the consequence of that is new valuation. All of a sudden you want to be around those, that half of the population that you weren't interested in particularly. This, this you can do do a version of this for uh, people who are you know who are gay or bi or whatever. I mean that that's it, it, I put it in these terms just because it's easier for me. But that's an example of this. Think about other things like think of the things you were passionately committed to at fourteen. Your 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 athletic team or your whatever, you know. And and then when you're by the time you're twenty, this stuff just is no longer counts for you in that way. Right. Why? Because you have evolved to other interests. You have expanded the, 
the reach of your awareness of what matters. All of a sudden, things that had, you weren't available to you show up because the horizon, the clearing in which you exist now allows for new phenomena to show up that suddenly are appealing or important that you couldn't even see before. So everyone has gone through this in, some dom in various domains of life. And, and so that the idea that something like evolution of your awareness to include non-human beings and systems, ecosystems as inherently valuable in some way, that's a developmental uh, stage, a new opportunity for people. People who haven't been there yet, it's not that they're bad and wrong any more than a 10 year old is bad and wrong because he's not interested in sex mm -hmm. or he's not interested in art or literature or whatever that, that's not available to somebody at 10. Yep. That's where they're at. So you have to reach people where they're at and offer an invitation mm -hmm. by modeling your behavior such that so, that person might be actually interested in seeing, well, why do you think that? That's huge. Instead of coming at people and saying you're bad and wrong to begin with, why would they be interested in having a conversation with you that might end up allowing them to see new value, new domains of reality that they're, they, they can't access at the moment? Yeah, that's huge. And I do want to get more into that in a little bit, but I just want to add in a couple aspects. But so basically, most people accept the concept of child development, but a lot of people don't really understand or accept the existence of adult psychological development. And that's basically what we're talking about, because you can think of people who, who are environmentalists and remember when you didn't really care about saving the trees? Well, and now you do. So that was actually a stage of development. And I do try to talk to people saying, listen, it's not that the folks who don't care don't want to they're just not able to yet yes. and i, I want to read a couple quotes from your book integral ecology your co-author i should have mentioned before and let's see if i get the name right why, why don't you say the name <laughs> sean s bjorn hargens okay i was gonna say it exactly like that <laughs> yeah. s bjorn was his it's his wife's name they, they took their he used to be sean hargens <laughs> okay sean s bjorn hargens okay i got it now that's great well so a couple quotes in there and this this ties into the concept and I don't want to get too much into it, but stuff I've studied with spiral dynamics, also integral theory with Ken Wilber, which is what a lot of your book is based on, does talk about some of those aspects of going from these different stages. So basically to simplify in terms of environmental stuff, when you didn't really care about it or you cared about it in a very different way. And then over time you, you care about it your values change. But but the concept of biocentrism, uh, maybe you can speak on that after I read a couple quotes from your book here. So uh, you have here, you must care about something more than just yourself or more than just your family or tribe to care for the natural environment. So that seems obvious, but not everyone quite understands that, that you have to go beyond just that self and then the group to actually be like, oh, the forest counts too, not just, oh, I can get nuts from the forest, but the forest counts. And then this concept, biocentric reasoning refers to an appeal that the natural environment has moral standing that is at least partly independent of its value as a human commodity. Most of my listeners will get that. Most of my listeners consider themselves in that biocentric field. And then, but this is where it ties into the psychological development stuff. And maybe you can speak a little more to this, or maybe this covers it. But 
this final quote says, research provides preliminary and suggestive evidence of a biocentric line of development that unfolds relatively independent of an anthropocentric line. So could you maybe speak a little to that? Yeah, this is where it gets, stuff gets really complicated because <laughs> it's difficult to tease out to yeah. separate these issues in some okay. way. Uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, first of all, what is biocentrism? It, 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 biocentrism is one way of representing it is the affirmation of the whole of life and the life systems, the ecosystems that support life uh, are really uh, inherently valuable and are really, uh, and, and that human beings are one aspect of the biosphere. Uh, we don't own it. Uh, you know, we, we aren't, uh, you know, the masters of it uh, in the sense of that a, a master is, is someone who can turn this, a slave into basically just uh, manpower, person power, who has no standing on his or her own. Um, so biocentrism is a pushback to anthropocentrism. Uh, now, you know, anthropocentrism is an abstraction in a way. You know, one of the things that I think we ought to contemplate is this, you know, when uh, Europeans made initial contact uh, with uh, North, the Americas, in, let's say 1492, although evidently Europeans were here much earlier, but this was the big moment. Um, so what, 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 was going, what was going on uh, with this contact? Uh, one of the, if you've, if you've heard of this book, 1491. Um, I don't think so. Yeah. To, you know, what, what, was, what were the Americas like a year before Columbus, hmm. right? Well, it's a really interesting account of, uh, you know, because it takes into account all these findings of anthropology and archaeology and all this stuff that's been going on the last 50 or 60 years. And the, the assumption we, we had, let's say 30 or 40 years ago, 50 or 100 years ago about Native Americans living lightly on the land and all this kind of stuff may, may have been a lot of projection, a lot of fantasy mm. about what was going on. Because one of the things argued in this book and based upon anthropological research is that the uh, populations on North and South America had pretty much reached their carrying capacity. They, they popped, the continents were filled with people uh, you know, 100 million people in, uh, in North America, perhaps. I mean, that's a lot of people. And the limitations they faced were technological. They had, these were Stone Age people who, were, who did amazing things with the technology available to them. Now, one reason that they, Native Americans were interested in Europeans uh, was because Europeans had all this high-tech stuff. They had hatchets. They had knives. They had steel pots. They, you know, they had all kind of stuff. They had horses. They had, all, you know, that Native Americans just didn't have. Now, the unfortunate consequence of contact was the introduction into North and South America of diseases from Europe. Mm -hmm. That's where ninety percent of the population uh, uh, drop occurred was because of disease. White settlers did not murder all these people, and they were un, who were here before us, and they were unaware of how disease traveled. But here's one of the consequences: by the time white settlers reached uh, hundreds of miles inland in the United States, uh, they discovered land that appeared to be untouched. 
that was there was no farming evident and so on because all those Native Americans who were heavily using the land and managing it had died off from smallpox and other diseases. And so decades and decades went by with, without any of their activity. And so we, white settlers developed the idea that Indians really had no historical presence on the continent, which turns out to be, of course, completely false. Indian Native Americans, they, a lot of the, uh, by the way, Native American uh, professors whom I've met prefer the term American Indian. Yes. Sure. Native American is problematic for other reasons, but I don't want to get into that. Right. But here's an example of our projection onto Native American Indians of ecological values, which they themselves may not have had. I just want you to think about that. Mm -hmm. In other words, had they had access to the technology we have, or we had in 1490 and 1590, these, this continent would have looked a lot different because they would have been able to do things that they were limited by because of the Stone Age technology. Mm -hmm. It's not because the Indians were, were pure and uh, you know, uh, uh, spotless and had no uh, desire or greed or whatever. They, they had their own issues with these matters. Um, so th there, there's where we have to rethink our understanding of the history of North and South America. The effect of contact, the reasons for the you know, destruction of native populations, and so on, and also about ecological attitudes, which they may or may not have had. But you know, this is a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. When you, when, if you take this seriously, you know, uh, look into this. These matters which I'm discussing right now, it really brings you up against uh, the reason why a lot of uh, American Indians don't like having their past appropriated by white environmentalists for their own political purposes. Yeah, yeah, it's a super complex topic, and I'm, it is. I'm clearly nowhere near as well versed on this as you are, but I do think I would say that just both sure folks living back then were closer to a balance than folks sure. now, but the yeah. idea that they were not impacting the landscape. Uh, I think is disproven by the fact that a lot of the megafauna was eliminated during that time. And of course, I can't speak too much in regards to settlers. Obviously, European settlers did kill Native Americans, but it does seem like much of the research backs that who knows how much percentage you say 90%, maybe that's true, but the majority of deaths was from disease. It doesn't exonerate European settlers from scalp you know going out there and getting scalps of native americans and stuff like that but i do think that there is a bit of a, a mythos associated with this and one of the things that i come up against is so i used to be of the school of yeah we need to all go back to hunter gatherers and that was the pure time of eden and stuff like that and then i started learning a little bit more information about well okay that was sort of a stage and like you said if i think if a lot of tribes had modern technology at the time, they would have done a lot of despoilation of the environment. I do think there was a bit of an environmental ethic there for sure, because they were living, okay, if we pull up too much of this, we don't have any of it next year. So I, I think that sure. there's some truth in that, but yeah, I think it's clearly been exaggerated by, by mostly white people and it's it's such a it's such a complex topic, but I I had for long been of that school of we need to all return to hunter gatherer. Of course, right now that's literally impossible because people are like, oh well, I get my deer. It's like, well, 
that's nice. Uh, if we all hunted our deer, there would literally be zero deer. So <laughs> not, not a solution, not saying that it's evil for you to hunt your deer, but it's like, that's not going to work for all of us. And where am I supposed to hunt or gather these days? It's, it's just, doesn't exist but what's well, interesting pre pretty soon we'd totally retribalize and go to war with each other over deer well yeah that would happen too and then <laughs> that certainly there was some of that going on back in the day but what what's interesting is i get at first interest in the stuff that i'm doing from folks who are in that school which in some folks would call it ecofeminism however you want to call it and I, and I think a lot of that stuff is really accurate but then i kind of do pour some cold water on some of that and then they, they turn against me i guarantee you at least one person who is listening to this podcast will not like this part and will never listen to any of my podcasts even though they listened to 32 in a row because uh, i'm talking about this stuff but i'm interested in what works not what fantasy feels good and i think what integral points out is that there is truth in almost every perspective, but some perspectives have a bit more, more truth than others. So the idea of, hey, I'm a logger and I live in this community and uh, we need to, to take from it in order to survive. There, there's a little bit of truth to that, right? And then yep. the idea of, okay, well, Native people were closer in balance and maybe there are some things that we can learn from it. There's truth to that. And then there's truth to people saying, hey, well, we actually could benefit from some of this ecology or sorry, some of this technology to benefit the natural world. And then there's folks saying, yeah, but, all, you know, is nuclear power really a great, great thing? There, there are some real impacts from that, whatever your belief on nu nuclear power is. But the, the idea that some technology does not is just because it's technology, just because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it. But that brings us into this whole concept of the different ways of maybe looking at the environmental world. And I'd like if we could to go into this topic that's in your book, Integral Ecology, which is just a really, we, we might not be able to cover all aspects of it, but I was hoping we could go a little bit into this concept of the eight eco-selves and it's basically these different ways to look at being more or less an environmentalist. You, you could put it that way. And so for those who are listening, maybe you can sort of identify where you are and realizing that it's not the end all be all of looking at the natural world, but that guaranteed, whatever your perspective is, you do have some, there is value in your perspective. You are on to something, but there also might be some things that you are missing. And that is baked into the model because there's always that next level of development is, does that make sense as an explanation yeah i th i think so uh you know that there are these uh eight uh you know uh kinds of approaches to environment starting with eco guardian which is the prim primal one and ending up with eco sage it's equal wise you know outlook uh and i, I think all of them have their own value you know uh there's none of them are completely wrong uh none of them are completely right but but the the, the greater your development uh, let, let me give you another example of this from the human domain i mean if you, let's say you grow up in a family where uh you you have a the family has this kind of prejudice against certain kind of people mm -hmm. i don't know what they are you know whatever the, you know, everybody's got we all have our biases and so on and so you, let's say you, that's how you start out. When you encounter such people, you kind of uh, are suspicious of them or whatever. But then you meet 
uh, two or three of these people in another setting and you discover that, gee, well, you know, where they're very much like me. What, what is the problem? Why are they, why did my dad say that about these people or my, my mother? Why are they suspicious? And so that's a moment of awakening. When you, when you recognize that I have not been allowed, I have not allowed these people to show up in themselves, but I force them to show up through the screen of prejudice. Okay, so something similar to that happens to people, I think, when they, they become more attuned to nature, to, in other words, that it didn't never occur to them that uh, the natural world uh, really has any particular status. I mean, from their point of view, paving everything over and turning everything into a big urban landscape would be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are uh, moments of insight which occur for people like that uh, for whatever reason. And then they suddenly realize, well, gee, you know, I've been totally over-investing value in all the stuff that I like. And it turns out that the non-human world is full of amazing phenomena, things that are so fantastic that I can't help but admire and enjoy, you know, observing and taking part in, taking hikes all of a sudden. Now I'm out in the, and seeing all this stuff. These things happen to people, these transformations. Now, it doesn't mean you, you don't have to completely give up. The previous point of view, there's a tendency, though, to dissociate yourself from it, make it bad and wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you can hold on to what's good about the previous uh, moment of, of your life development, see what's healthy about it, that can be a good thing. Right, let me give you an example of this. Here we have in here called the something called the uh, eco-strategist, eco-manager. This is one of the eight forms of uh, e- ecological self, I suppose. Um, well, what's, what's good about eco-strategists, eco-management? Think about free market environmentalism. Now, some of your listeners will totally go off the, you know, turn you off, I suppose, at this point. But there's a lot of really great stuff that comes from free market environmentalism. What is that about? It's, it's harnessing the market to, to effect ecological ends. For example, think of the nature society. It actually buys property, you know. Uh, no, no, what's it called? The Nature Conservancy. It uses the market uh, activity, purchasing land and, and creating easements on existing property and so on to, to uh, promote uh, ecologically uh, sensible ways of uh, making use of the land. You know, how, how can this land be used in a way that uh, uh, provides value for human beings, but at the same time does that in a way which allows for the long-term well-being of the land. Now, there are, there are people who are themselves uh, uh, capitalists who are really into free market activity who are also really lovers of nature. Now, it's hard to imagine both. How do you fit those together? But there are such people. And from their point of view, hey, look, if you don't understand economics, if you don't understand the discount rate, if you don't understand investment and so on, then you might as well give up being an environmentalist because you're not going to have much of an impact. So, how to? So here you you got to become like an eco jujitsu warrior, right? How to make use of economic strategies? You see, to pr- provide a win-win solution, we retain some economic benefit, but at the same time, we're now including ecological benefit as a, as a strategic outcome uh, by making use of market strategies. 
So this is an example. Now, of course, you, you can, the market strategy can you know go south, go the wrong way, and it just ends up in exploitation again. And it does. But there's, there's this right. delicate balance between using market mechanisms and economic mechanisms for economic and environmental good, and on the other hand, going too far in either direction. Um, so that's just an example of, I think, drawing from the uh, eight ecological selves here. Sure. So the, the concept of the eco-manager or the eco-strategist, so you use nature conservancy. And, and yeah, so I even find myself triggered by that because for a long time, of course, they do buy up some land and some of that's protected. But a lot of times they they are actually doing a fair amount of extraction and they're kind of coding it under the term of protection. So they're appealing to the green notions where in some ways they are, but in other ways it would be a lot better if they were just honestly coming out and saying, hey, we're buying this up for it to be a working forest rather than we're preserving it. So I think that's where folks who are maybe the eco-radical start going, hey, there are some concerns with this, but the idea of a wholesale rejection of buying up land and trying to do better things with it, maybe that is an unfair way of looking at it. But what is the, what is the eco-radical? Because I would say that is 90% of my listener base. <laughs> Well, it says here, uh, I'm just reading from the table from our book, eco-radical, the environmental ethic of it, that position is promotes eco-social justice, exposes the dis disaster of modernity, you know, technology, capitalism, industry. Right. Uh, on the other hand, what's the ecological violation? Where does it get wrong? It advocates a flatland ecology through guilt and shame tactics, ignoring the dignity of modernity. Uh, so what, what are we to think about this? You know, how are we to understand that? Well, for one thing, there's, there's something really different about human beings. Now, th this is something that really, really touches off, touches a nerve of a lot of deep ecologists. Now, you know, I was involved in a formation of deep ecology. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I was one of the early theorists of it. You know, I know, I know Dave Foreman and Arnie Ness. And I mean, you know, George Sessions and, Bill Duvall. I mean, I was part of all that, you know, so I'm, I'm, I know about this stuff from the inside. Yep. And I love to deep ecology and I still re respect the, the truthful aspects of it. But here's the thing, you know, there's something really weird about human beings. We're not ordinary animals, you know, and that, that's why we're, we have all this stuff going on. Technology, you know, uh, books, highways, uh, software, there's no other animal that comes anywhere close to all this, okay? Right. Now, does that mean that all this stuff is great? No, there's a lot of bad consequences from all this stuff. But in order to give a, an honest appraisal of the nature of, of the, the ecos, ecosphere on Earth, you have to take into account the fact that human beings are not ordinary animals. Right. We're not just plain citizens of the natural world. Mm -hmm. That's really tough for people to take, yep. you know, who are totally deep ecologists who want to go back to being hunter gatherers and, you know, use the odd a lot to uh, slay their prey and so on. This I remember talking to Dave Foreman about all this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it's tempting to think like that, you know, that it's just a matter of us becoming plain ecological citizens. You know, Arnie, I mean, uh, Aldo Leopold spoke about that in some ways, but we're not plain citizens. You know, the fact that we talk and think and reflect about our actions, uh, 
uh, differentiates us dramatically from ordinary critters. Uh, and so, so that's what is meant by this flat land, mm -hmm. reduction of everything to the same level. You know, I mean, you know, so amoeba, you know, how, how are we to go about being biocentric? I mean, do you go to the extent of the Jains in India where you use a feather to clear your path as you're walking so that you don't inadvertently step on any tiny insects? I mean, is that, where do you draw the line in terms of violation? Right. Of our, you know, how far are you going to take biocentrism? Because bacteria, right? There's bacteria. Bacteria, I mean, you know, you might as well. Parasites. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much, you know, so any of these positions, if you push it too far, it becomes kind of nutty, yes. you know. Uh, so the, the idea, and here I go back to the ancient Greeks, you know, the point, of, the point would be how to attain, achieve a kind of temperance, a balance, a harmonic understanding of how things work for human beings. You know, I go back to this thing about estrus with mammals, big mammals and so on. You know, they, they are, they have this sexual craving only once every, once a month for a year. Mm -hmm. Okay. We're not like that. Our capacity for desire is much different. It's bigger. It's almost endless. And this is a, this is a, a, a burden human beings bear. Yes, okay. Sir. You know, I, I want to have your listeners, uh, you know, think about it. And, and, and go back to when you were 11. You know, when before sexual desire, before a, a cra the craving for the other uh, shows up, uh, pe people at that age have a lot of harmony and balance. You know, they're, they're, they've achieved a kind of uh, uh, integrity. You know, you know, 11 year olds are pretty cool, you know. Mm -hmm. But then you go through this whole craziness in your teens and 20s and beyond uh, where everything is upset because of this introduction of testosterone and estrogen uh, into your system in greater amounts. And it, it creates a whole new person in a way. So, you know, th th that's uh, to understand the nature of the human. If you look at Buddhism, for example, Buddhism uh, says that life involves a lot of self-inflicted suffering yes. through ignorance, craving, and hatred. And that these three poisons are why the world looks the way it looks. You know, the world doesn't look like this with animals and plants around. Right. You know, it's true. Plant, you know, animals can overshoot their environment. Too many deer, you know, you end up with a big population drop because they eat too much of the stuff. You know, the natural balance is, is always temporary back and forth. But you don't have any crazy animals like us. In a way, you know, from the point of view of the, if you're a student of animal life, human beings are completely bonkers. Mm -hmm. You know, we just don't have any, it's trying to limit our cravings and desires is really part of the challenge that every individual faces. So when you when you get huge corporations which are in the service of, of fueling those cravings, you know, look at advertising, look at all the stuff on the web. I mean, it's unbelievable uh, that that's part of why we have to have go beyond this flatland ontology. You got to recognize there are different types of consciousness, and human consciousness and its capacities is way different from animal consciousness. It doesn't make animal consciousness any less valuable. Right. It's just different. Yep. So we can't navigate as if we're just going to become animals. Right. And have these limits that animals have. That, that's a no, no non-starter. We can't go so, back. 
Yeah, I used to think the ideal thing would be that I would devolve into a wolf. And I mean, maybe if I had that option, I would choose it, but that's not a viable option. It's not going to happen for us. Nope. So, you know, I, you know, if you go back and study myths from, you know, various tribal societies, you know, thousands of years ago, there, there, there's a widespread recognition that something happened to human beings. We used to be animals and we'd get along with other animals like they were even though we would eat them. I mean, we, we had kind of a relationship right. with the animals, but something happened to human beings. There was a kind of fall, you know, something went, went bad with us. Mm -hmm. uh, so that murder, you know, rape, pillage, uh, theft, uh, you know, this whole explosion of stuff uh, that, that all world religious traditions have been working to try to corral uh, happened. And so the, you have to have a real clear-eyed picture of what human beings are like and what's possible for us. And to see what culture has been about has been trying to harness and corral some of this violent activity or violent tendencies of human beings. Um, it's not surprising to see what happens when you get access to high technology. Just, just the invention of, you know, when they talk about the Iron Age, you know, the invention of iron and later steel. I mean, this is huge, mm -hmm. you know, uh, because it gives human beings capacity to uh, create violent activity unthinkable previously. Um, so there, there's no simple way out for us from the environmental problems we face. Uh, that there's no simple way out uh, at all. And secondly, there's no way out until we take a good look at who we are as human beings mm -hmm. and what strategies we have to develop in terms of in, uh, emphasizing new values, developing new economic attitudes, uh, new uh, eco-friendly technology, all on all fronts. All this activity has to be undertaken if we're gonna navigate ourselves through the end of the 21st century, because mm -hmm. this is gonna be a pretty rough ride here. Uh, as we are, a population reaches a certain peak. Yep. Uh, but then you also have to keep in mind there's going to be a dramatic drop in human population that's already started. Mm. And, uh, you know, that the depopulation is going to be a problem. And we're never going to reach this, this number of people again. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a really interesting moment. So that's why a lot of environmentalists say, look, if we can just get through 2050 or 2060, mm -hmm. uh, where we peak out, uh, you know, maybe maybe we can leave the planet uh, in better shape than we than we would have if the population would just go go keep going through the roof. Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, there's dramatic population changes going on on the part of humans. Uh, there are just so many of us, and that's one of the problems. Yep, and we do talk about that on the Green Root podcast. We definitely get some hell for even bringing up the topic, but uh, I do think it's. Green root. So we look at roots and that's one of the roots. I just want to very quickly go through the, this table. Not going to take very long because I want to, I want folks to understand that there are different ways to look at what the ecological crisis is going from those of us who could be a little bit of doomsdayers to those who might be like, you know what, everything is actually all okay. And I kind of fall a little bit in the middle, but I just want to go very quickly, if that's okay, Michael, through through some of these, it's only going to take a couple minutes, and then maybe sure. you can comment on basically the, the eco-integralist concept, because the, the reality we have to accept is for those of us who do believe there is an eco-crisis, and it might look different to 
different folks based on where we're at, there is something going on. There, there is something that is real. I think we can acknowledge that we're not really adequately addressing it. So the idea of just continuing to do the same thing that we've always done, I mean, maybe that's just how things have to be. But I personally believe that it is necessary for us to evolve as environmentalists if we really care about this stuff. And it may ultimately be that there's literally nothing we can do. And this is just us going through the motions and feeling good about ourselves. But let me just go real quick through this. So, so the eco-guardian, so their ethic is they're performing rituals. So that would be a, you know, a very ritualistic idea of, of dealing with stuff. It's one with aspects of nature, but maybe not with humanity. Eco-warrior is challenging the system through these tactical non-conventional ways, and folks can be very aggressive and striving to conquer nature in that way. That's the violation. So what happens is you're in a certain mindset, and then there is a limitation. And then what happens is humanity has evolved to deal with that limitation. And then it has a new, oh, cool, we got to this stage, but then there's another limitation. And that is kind of what the process of evolution is. And then going on real quickly, the eco-manager is passing laws institutions to act as stewards over nature. Of course, what that does is the violation is its domination of humans over the natural world. That can be a fall back. Eco-strategists, what we talked about before, the ethic there is conserving resources for consumption over the long term. The violation there can be exploiting nature because of greed and focus on short-term profits. Eco-radical, this is, this is probably you if you're listening to this, uh, and this has certainly been me and probably is still me in many ways, promotes that eco-social justice, the disaster of modernity, but that, that the limitation is that we're ignoring the positive elements of modernity and we're just trying to guilt and shame, and that's not very effective. Now, getting into the eco-holist, only three more. So eco-holist, so that's mapping the complexity of relationships within and between ecosystems. So that's a step above the just emoting that a lot of us tend to do with our activism. It's just like, well, they're really bad and we're just gonna say that. It's like, okay, well, that doesn't really accomplish very much. Uh, so you're looking at the more complexity of these relationships, but their limitation with that is over-relying on those exterior systems. And I can't speak more of that because I don't really understand all that. But the eco-integralist, so two more here, and then I'll have you comment if you could on the, well, frankly, the eco-integralist and the eco-sage. But so the eco-integralist, this is honoring and integrating multiple approaches to the environment, sees value in all the below perspectives, realizing that, well, somebody might actually look at things in terms of doing a ritual. And maybe I don't personally believe that that ritual does anything, but they do, and they have a genuine contribution. And how do we, how do we include them in, in what we're doing? The problem with that is that you can include too much and get bogged down in the conflicting views. And of course, that's that's right. constantly where it is. And then finally, the eco sage. In my best moments, I can at least intellectually understand this. Uh, basically, you know, I've been in the desert, in the middle of the desert, and there I had an epiphany. No matter what we do, we're not going to destroy this place, right? Like this is going to exist beyond us. We humans right. only have so many impacts. You know, so I had that for a few seconds and I'm like, no, we have to get back to fighting. But that's the eco sage. So experiencing the unity of all and identifying with the totality of manifest creation. So that's almost like if we humans do things, it's part of the the 
the plan, but it can be removed from pragmatic action in the world. And that's my concern with that is it's like, oh, let everything be, oh, they're about to destroy this old growth forest. Well, that's natural too. And we'll just let it be. That doesn't necessarily have to be a part of that perspective, but it often is. So do you want to comment on any of that? <laughs> well, first of all, you know, I, I, can you post things on your uh, podcast? Yeah, I can I can include information about that. No, why yeah. don't you just photocopy that page? I gave you permission right now, page two twenty seven. Okay. Chart, Great. So your listeners can you know spend a little more time thinking about these issues. Perfect. I mean, that'd be that'd be useful, I think. Yeah, this is very yeah. complex, of course. Yeah. Well, you know, every, everything is everything is complex. You know, we love the idea of simplicity. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's just not. You know, for example, I mean, just think, just think of your personal relationships. Now, I I don't know, you know, any of your, maybe I know a few of your listeners, but if they're listeners or anything like me and the people I know, their lives are incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. Children, the issues, you know, raising children, your spouse, your divorce, you're this, you're that. I mean, the whole thing is human, human life, independent of how we make a living and what we're doing to the planet is just unbelievable. And this whole COVID thing brings it home how hard it is not to have a, a, a reach outside your own house, how much we need to be with other people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's tough. So that uh, don't expect uh, things to be clean and easy and, and simple. Everything significant that's achieved is achieved through enormous effort and a willingness to really hear the others with whom you disagree. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this, there's a, th- a theme of getting to yes. You know, how do you get to yes? You really have to hear the other person. Now, you know, if you're in a situation where you're you're, you're trying to get something accomplished and, and there's people on the other side of the thing, and when, when you hear them talking about you, you don't even recognize yourself in their description. Yes. You see, how, why are they saying that about us? You know, we, we don't we don't believe all that nonsense they're saying about us. They're making us look like the devil. And, and they, they have no interest in what the good thing that we know is good uh, that we're trying to get in front of them. So, you know, you're never going to get anywhere like that. If you want to achieve something, here's what you have to do in, in bargaining situation. You have to be able to get inside the head of the other people so well mm-hmm. that you can make a presentation of them and their position, which they would at the end of it say, wow. Someone finally got where we're coming from. Exactly. When, when, when you got the people on the other side saying, well, geez, it finally got somebody over here knows what our concern is. Yep. And we're belittling it or making it seem morally bankrupt. But to understand the suffering and the need and the desire on the part of people who hold this point of view. Mm-hmm. Now, so the first thing, and this is going to, this is tough for everybody. I look, I look at the mess we're in politically. Mm-hmm. Where all this projection going on, left and right, you know, where no one listening uh, to what the other people are saying. I mean, it's horrible. It's extremely dangerous the situation we're in politically right now. Yes, and that's part of be, partly because no one's listening. Yep. Uh, there's a complete lack of respect uh, from the point of view of the other other side. So environmentalists, and I, you know, hey, I've been in, I, I've done ecofeminism. I've been a deep ecologist. You know, I've done it all. I've been through all these and each of them has value. I mean, I see the importance of those points of view. And if and what I've also discovered is the 
power of getting the viewpoint of those people who don't agree with this. And so that the, I've discovered the more I look into those other points of view, the, the, the greater my appreciation is for them. The more I see, I can see where they're coming from on this. You know, I get why that's important. I, you know, I, I wish it weren't important, but I see why it is important to them. So how can I work with these people in a way that lets them see that I really get it? Right. I see where they're coming from. And, and I see why some of the proposals I'm making will hurt. That they won't like it because it's going to hurt their interests, which are authentic and valid in their own way. Right. And that that concession on my part, see where I, I'm stepping out now. That this requires something of me. Yeah. This means opening myself up to the suffering of the other, to their vulnerability, to why they're afraid to why they're concerned about what might happen if my view prevails totally, mm -hmm. what will happen to them, their livelihood, you know, their whole, et cetera. So if they hear that from me, that I get it, and, he, and here's what I understand your concerns are, let me know where I get the thing wrong. If I say something that's distorting your authentic view, you tell me about it and I'll straighten it out. So once we all get our cards on the table and everyone is satisfied that at least we get where we're coming from, mm -hmm. then something interesting can happen. Right. I don't know what it would be, mm -hmm. nor, nor does anyone. But that's where I, I think about in all these labor uh, negotiations and political negotiations and all kinds of negotiations in, in marriage counseling, psychotherapy, where you have to learn the point of view of the other. It's also true here in environmental concerns. Right. Once you're able to integrate the point of view of the other, it doesn't mean you have to become that point of view, but you have to see why it's important to these people right. and learn to live in their, walk in their shoes for a while. And it doesn't mean and you can't point ability, out, it doesn't mean you can't point out the limitations of it. Though, absolutely. Right? Well, that's, that's part of the thing. You know, the, the first, the first step is to get where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. And then once the other side finally says, well, finally someone's understood us, yes. then there's an opportunity to, to ask them to get where we're coming from. Can, can, would, can, you, can you appoint someone to represent our point of view in, in, the, in the most favorable way? In other words, what, what's good about what you're saying? Okay, what's good about environmentalism? What's good about biocentrism? And then once everyone's got the goodness out, well, okay, then you can talk about the limitations. Mm -hmm. You know, you can people, you can then you can imagine people saying, well, you know, you've got a point there. You know, we kind of push push this issue pretty far, and, and we can see why the costs for your side are pretty heavy on this. Right. So what can we do here? How can we finesse this? What what what's the best way to proceed here that's going to take into account our both of our pressing concerns here? Now there's going to be some losses. You can't get everything you want, right. uh, but you can you can make progress in terms of. And, and and I'll tell you what. I grew up in Ohio, not far from the West Virginia border, in, in Akron and Newcomerstown and Pennsylvania. And if you were to drive through Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the 1950s and 60s, the amount of pollution from those steel mills. I mean, it was like I remember driving through there one time with my dad on the way somewhere. It's like going through hell. I couldn't believe it, you know. Now, we're way beyond that in the United States. Yeah. You know, we still have, 
pollution issues and water pollution and stuff, but, but you know, come on, it, it changed so dramatically in 50 years that it's unbelievable. This shows what's possible yeah. when, you, when you enlist the concerns about public health that people rightly had, but which were ignored, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and then more and more people, then you, you have limits on what kind of pollution you can, you can put out. Same thing with, with uh, all kinds of practices. Think about how there's been pushback about how animals have been treated in agriculture. And the, the, you know, that, you know, when I go to the store, I mean, half the eggs now are, you're more than half are all about being cage free, you know, the chickens. Well, you know, the, you know, there's fudging going on there, but hey, yeah. there's progress there. Pe- people want to, people want to consume now in ways that respect the producers of those things, like I'm talking about animals, all right? And there's also much greater concern about a natural landscape and you know, clear cutting. And there are places where you can understand where clear cutting may be justified if the whole thing is already managed. But how about different forest practices? Thinning, it's more expensive. On the other hand, it prevents uh, forest fires. You know, I mean, that's one of the problems we have in California in the West in general unmanaged forests, uh, where the fires we've had in Colorado this past year, as a result largely of uh, the torching of these trees killed by uh, the pine beetle. This is a natural phenomenon in some ways. I mean, all the, all the trees, uh, uh, these pines uh, uh, grow up at the same time after devastation by the pine beetle, and then they all die at the same time. And then they have these big fires uh, caused by lightning long before human beings were around. But one of the challenges in California, for example, where so many people living up in the, in the mountains with these forests, there's no forest management. And you have this huge buildup of debris on the ground. So that when you do have a forest fire, then it kills the big trees. Whereas before, uh, if, you, if you're a, stu- a student of the forest, you realize fire is a part of the forest ecosystem. But not if you have an unnatural fire suppression regime. And fire suppression now goes on because too many people living in the forest. So, you know, th- you can see how complicated this gets. Yeah. And, and just, to, just to step in there just really quick, because a, a lot of our listeners, we've, we've been following the wildfire things. And, and there's definitely debate on some of the scientific stuff in regards to how effective management is. And, and I think sure. most, most yeah. of the agreement is if it's areas right around communities, that can help. But the idea of going into backcountry forests, that's not yeah. really effective. And like you said, wildfire has been going on for the longest time and fuels are a part of it, but it's also climate and stuff like that. Not to get off in, into that tangent yeah. there, but yeah, there's, there's, it's very complex and, and there's sometimes nature is doing what it needs to do. And when people go into the forest, hey, I mean, that's kind of what happens. But of course, we have these communities out there and the idea that we're not going to be doing some, you know, home maintenance or even some uh, fire breaks right around the communities. I I think that's reasonable. But, you know, people can disagree on that aspect. But yeah, I I see the point that you're getting at overall. But in in terms of the eco-integralist thing, so would that be a helpful way to start looking at environmental things. So it could be, okay, well, I'm going to step in there and I'm going to say, you know what, sometimes fire is, it's doing its own thing and 
we don't necessarily need to manage the hell out of it. But okay, we can acknowledge that in these certain circumstances, say around communities or whatever your, your belief might be, this might be reasonable. That starts getting a lot more complicated than say, hey, we, you know, we need to log in all forests because that prevents wildfires, or we need to never do a thing about wildfire and just let communities burn. Like obviously neither of those are are true, but that that integralist perspective, where you're you're looking at the different approaches, I think people can be in that mindset and maybe disagree on the finer points. But are you saying that that is kind of the mindset that it would be helpful for environmentalists to evolve into? Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a, a crucial uh, integrative step when you're integrating the concerns of others who 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 at some point can't can't even acknowledge your concern. Because right. they feel so put down and threatened by your intransigence and unwillingness to listen to why they're worried, uh, that's yeah. not you're not going to have a good outcome. Well, and and I, I think so. It's like maybe, maybe to start concluding this because uh, this is definitely pretty amazing. I and mean, this is amazing for me because this is kind of where my head is at a lot of places. So we have to acknowledge. All right, if you're listening to this. And you have a particular viewpoint and you're like, I don't like to, I don't want to look at, I don't want to think, I don't want to humanize the, the earth destroyers and stuff like that. The idea that having compassion for them and understanding them does not mean you abide by everything they're doing. And it might right. be once in a while, well, okay, they actually have a point there that I've been ignoring, but we have to accept we're not, we're not doing this very effectively, whatever we're doing right now. And, and there's a quote here. I, I just want to read a few more quotes just because you, you do this so perfectly that it's like, let me, let me just read this quote rather than me framing anything. And then maybe we can wrap, wrap this up. And if you have any comments about this, but so effective environmental advocacy requires rhetorical strategies that consider the values of those you are educating. So if you're an eco-feminist and you want to talk to a logger about eco-feminism, good luck, because that ain't going to work. <laughs> so so we, we've got to start realizing maybe that we do speak a little bit differently to each audience, and, and not everyone is on board that idea. But this idea of, um, there's another quote, in increasingly integrative multi-perspectivalism, which recognizes the partial truth content, however limited of, well, it's of more junior centers of gravity, but just folks who are maybe, we're no longer in the stage, let's say we've gone past the stage of technology is everything, and now we're in the stage of, well, we have to look at the natural world and it's important. It's realizing, you know what, sometimes the people who say a little bit of technology is worthwhile are making some good points and we're maybe ignoring the fact that, yeah, I'm utilizing the internet to do this podcast. I can't, I, I'm just denying the fact that that, that exists. Uh, but this is, and this is the stuff that I would like you to comment on in closing, Michael. So just three more quotes here. And this is to do with moving forward. So until a critical mass of people evolve to postmodern levels in which heedless domination of human and non-human beings becomes unacceptable and immoral, environmentalism will remain a reform movement within a technological modernity. And one other quote that ties right into that, until we can create healthy expressions of each level of development, and until we have leaders who embody this world-centric, so looking at it not just self group egocentric or group centric, but world centric and planet centric levels of development, we will continue to misuse nature. And then finally, integral ecology avoids pointing to a single cause as the proverbial wrong turn in humanity's unfolding. So instead of like, oh yeah, you know, um, 
when we agriculture, that was it. And it's like, well, maybe there was even issues before that. And then there are more issues after. Integral Ecology agrees that there are many different root causes for our current situation. So what, what can you say about all that? Just a lot. <laughs> well, you know, I really, I really can't say anything much because uh, my wife has come down and pointed out that I'm an hour and 20 minutes in and there's okay. stuff I have to do. Yep, well, that's where um, we're gonna wrap this I, up. I, I like to, those are great quotes. Uh, uh, and I, 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 I stand by them. I think that this is the way forward. I'd love it if you would uh, go ahead and again, post these uh, quotes on your podcast, okay. if you have a place to put them, because I think those, you picked out really good, uh, uh, juicy uh, ideas from the book. Uh, and I, I do hope that, uh, uh, I just in closing, uh, that I hope your listeners will, will, will get this. You know, I, I remain a deep ecologist in some ways. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of truth in deep, deep ecology and ecofeminism. Uh, there are contemporary ways of trying to express a kinship with the non-human world that, let's say, traditional peoples long had. You know, you know, you got to keep in mind. You know, traditional peoples did not like, typically like uh, killing animals, uh, because they they regarded animals as as uh, having their own. You know, the animals are a kind of people. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this is you know tribal mentality. It, it's important stuff. You know, and. Uh, so this is why that typically hunter, hunters uh, would go through this purification process before they went out hunting mm. so that they would in some way be worthy of the animal being willing to sacrifice itself to the hunter. The idea wasn't the, the skillful noble warrior hunter. It was rather the hunter who was uh, uh, sufficiently humble and, and, and uh, a- asking for help that the animal would let him be killed, let itself be killed by the hunter. Now, you know, that's a really interesting perspective, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, so that that whole, the, the whole deep ecology theme, all, all those uh, themes of a humanity nature relationship, which emphasize the validity, the power, the, the beauty, the complexity of the whole planet. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're both, uh, uh, part of the planet, but but also members of the human community in ways which make us different. All these things make our our presence on the planet so complicated and complicating. You know, it's a lot on our plate as human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is why I, I go back to Buddhism. And there's so much suffering uh, in being human because there are all these conflicting uh, issues that we're faced. Environmentalism is one. Our treatment of nature is one of many important uh, conflicts and problems that human beings are faced with. Um, So I think compassion for the human beings uh, is really important uh, on the part of environmentalists. I mean, I I think this is one of the things that that I I got from being with deep ecologists and working with that was I I recognized there was a limitation of deep ecology. There wasn't enough compassion for the humans. You know, we're really strange animals and we suffer from the kind of heightened linguistic consciousness that we're, that we didn't ask for, you know, that we, you know, mm. we're, we're burdened with it in some ways, both great and a burden. And, and we have to be compassionate f- toward ourselves. Uh, I think that's an important step, uh, not to really so much excuse things, but to, but to take a deep breath and say, you know, we, we've got a rough road here as human beings. How can we make make life better for us and for the planet? How to do that in a way that that that, uh, that takes into account as much as possible 
all these competing perspectives, including perspectives of the animals and the plants and they, who can't speak for themselves, you know. Uh, but how to do all this? I, I just a lot on our plate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm optimistic. I, I think we're going to find our way forward. And I join with you in saying, no matter what happens, the planet will survive. We're not going to wipe out life on this planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's too hardy. You know, a big giant meteor is blowing and you know, knocking out 90% of life on Earth uh, is, is not able to take it out. We're not going to take it out. So let's not be too despairing. Uh, let's let's recognize that we're going to muddle through this one way or the other, and uh, we just have to hope for the best. Do our and do our best to recognize our own shortcomings. I think those are definitely words of wisdom. I try to live by them. I'm going to try a little harder. So I really appreciate it, Michael. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed being with you, Josh, and I, I hope your your listeners take away something valuable from it.